What do you do when you have some free time? What do you do when you have some spare time? What do you do, what are your hobbies? What are your leisure activities? Now, I know what you're already thinking. You're saying, Pastor Brian, I have no free time. I I know that's what you're thinking. I feel that all the time as well. However, to be honest, if we were to be sort of the average statistic, the Department of Labor gives us these statistics on a regular basis. And 2020 was kind of an outlier year, so they said the metrics are a little skewed. But it's interesting that the hours that people had available per day variably stayed within 0.3 to 0.5 percentage points of what it was in 2019. On average, people in the USA have four hours and 52 minutes of leisure time a day. Four hours and 52 minutes of leisure time a day. And they define uh, leisure time as things outside of paid work, uh, volunteer service, sleep, eating, household chores like shopping and cleaning your house or maintenance and, you know, the honeydew lists and those kinds of things. And personal care, caring for yourself, getting a haircut or doing laundry, uh, all those kinds of things. Uh, As a matter of fact, they actually provide this great chart of what kinds of things you can do. Per total, they have somewhere around five hours or so. You've seen them go up a little bit more. Like I said, it's about four hours and 52 minutes. Uh, And then many of those hours are spent watching TV. Some of those hours are spent playing games and computer use for leisure. And this is actually pretty interesting. You would think that the playing video games and computer use for leisure was for younger people, right? And that's true. The dominant demographic of of people who play video games in their leisure time is kids age 15 to 19 years old. And then it starts to drop off until you get to 65. And then all of a sudden it spikes right back up to match the 15 to the 19 year olds. Point is, watch out for Grandpa Gamer out there. He's coming. (laughs) Grandma Gunner is on your tail. And she's going to take you down, you noobs. She's going to do it. Socializing and communicating. Hanging out with friends, that sort of thing. Uh, Relaxing and thinking Participating in sports, exercise, and recreation, reading, or, you know, invariably other leisure or sports activities. That chart is super fascinating to me because it's amazing to think that if I were to do an analysis of my time, I wonder if I would fit into that bracket of where am I spending? Where am I finding almost five hours a day for leisure time? Does that kind of surprise you? A little bit? Sure does. And this is not a message on, man, your hobbies stink and you need to have better hobbies. That's, that's not the case at all. But here's my question. What do you do during your leisure time? What are the things that you enjoy? If you're joining us and participating online, what are some of the leisure activities that you enjoy? And don't, don't be ashamed of what you enjoy for your leisure time. If it's playing video games and you're that 55-year-old person, then type it proudly in chat. I 
will self-admittedly declare that I love playing video games. So his son, my son, comes by it honestly. So I, I get that. But what is it that you enjoy doing? And, and in person here in the room, what is it that you enjoy doing during your leisure time? What is it that you like to do? Just shout out your answer. What is the one thing that you say, this is my hobby, this is my thing, this is what I love to do when I have some leisure time? Just shout out your answers. Crafting. How many of you would say some arts and crafts would be what you'd do? A couple people, good. Reading. Yeah, lots of people enjoy reading. Um, I actually now have on my calendar at the end of the day from 4.30 to 5, start reading again about leadership. I went, okay, you know what? I haven't got to dedicate a little bit more work time to reading. And so I picked up a book of reading. And the very first day I did it, I pulled open my Kindle and I started to read and I woke up at 5.20. (laughs) The reading put me to sleep. I was so out of practice. I didn't stay engaged with what I was reading. I got to get better at that. What are some of the things you do in your spare time? Work on my car. car. How many people love to work on their car, their truck, their vehicles? uh, you're, You're on your own on that one, Alan, I think. Uh, how about in chat? Josh, have we, got, have we got any way to see what's going on in chat? Uh, Krista, can you jump online to the different spots? I'll put her on the spot a little bit, and we'll see if we can't get some answers. I should have probably planned that part. We're actually down one of our AV team members this morning. Uh, Josiah's not feeling well, so we're running a little uh, undermanned, understaffed. Uh, so I appreciate our volunteers who are helping with that uh, today as I just keep saying, hey, I'd like to do this, and didn't actually communicate this during the service. All right, Chris has got some. Video games. Going to the Y, swimming, working out with friends. Is that, did I get that right? Not really. Not really. Okay. The, going to the Y, working out, swimming with friends. I was close. I kind of got them jumbled. Do you remember the old Sesame Street thing? A loaf of bread, a container of milk, a stick of butter? Remember that? And, and the guy kind of forgets that whole thing about what he's supposed to buy for his mom. It's a long, I'm dating myself. Like, go to YouTube. I'm sure it's on there. Okay, what else you got? That's all we got. But when I think about my hobbies, I think about watching sports. Uh, I like watching my teams lose. I mean, I don't like watching it. That's just usually what happens. Uh, I love playing video games, I love watching movies, and I love reading. And I'm talking about hobbies and leisure time and what we do with our spare time because I think that's one of the best ways to get to know someone and what they're really passionate about. Knowing what they do if they have a choice of what they can do helps us know what they're really interested in. I mean, some of us, Don't work in a job that is our dream job, right? Some of us just have that job that, yes, we need this income. We've got to put food on the table. We've got to put a roof over our family. But it's not what drives us and what motivates us. So when I go out and meet someone new, I'll invariably ask them, so what is it you do for a living? And they'll describe their work and they'll describe whether they like it or not. And then I'll say, so what do you do when you're not working? What do you do with your free time? And almost every time, their eyes light up and they start to say, this is what I love doing. I love skiing. Man, I wish I could, 
you know, uh, go to Banff this year and go, go skiing. I would love to do that. Or I want to go to Colorado and get to the Rockies and ski some more. I want to I do that. Or I love to travel. And man, this pandemic's been so hard. I've got so many points saved up. I want to go, go to the islands. I want to go to Europe. I want to go to Italy. I want to go to Asia. I want to travel again. I think what... Um, Knowing what people do with their spare time helps us to know who they really are. It's hobbies that reveal our passions and our likes. Hobbies reveal us. Which makes me wonder. I wonder if that's true for God. I mean, the concept of time to God is not the same as concept of time to us we're at a fixed moment in time but God is through all of time and all of history he existed before time he'll exist long beyond when time um, passes and ends and we step well into eternity but but putting that aside a moment what do you think God would do with his spare time I mean biblically God has free time right He created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Did he rest because he was exhausted? Whew, putting together the world was hard. Making those people, man, that was was difficult. No, it was easy. He did it as as easy as you or I would pull out our phone and say, yes, I'd like to order a pizza. And the pizza shows up a little bit later. It was easier than that for him to create all of reality, which is the power of his word. And then he rested. There's a period in the uh, scriptures between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God isn't working that we know of. He's silent for over 400 years between the two testaments. He's gone on vacation. Is he done with, man, I am so sick of these Israelites. I mean, I gave them the promised land. They blow it. I kick them out. I bring them back. They're still blowing it. I'm done. We're just going to press the reset button after a few generations and do something different. What do you think? If God has free time, if God has leisure time, if God has spare time, what does he do in his spare time? Because I think what's true for us is true for him in this sense. That what God does in his free time actually shows us who he is you think he watches tv in his free time you think he kicks back fires up the latest netflix series and binge watches the whole thing on a saturday or sabbath or whenever (laughs) Uh, what do you think maybe he watches sports because you know all sorts of athletes said, I want to thank God for enabling me. Maybe he wants to be there to receive that. Thank you. And so he, he shows up at the sporting events. He wants to listen to those. Maybe that's it. Would he watch sports? Do you think he'd read? Would God hang out with friends? Would God um, exercise? Would God use his spare time to relax and think? What do you think? Now, I know I've already probably just violated so many people's understanding of theology and went, you're 
you're treading very, very close to blasphemy and heresy, and I, and I, don't, I don't mean to do that, but I want you to think of if God has spare time, what would he choose to do? Because I think we can actually see the answer. It's a little tongue-in-cheek to ask the question and to title the message this, what God does in his spare time. But I think if we figure out what God does in his spare time, we understand the character of God so much more than we did without understanding that. Here's my hypothesis. God does have spare time. And he does choose to use it in a way that's different from the work that he is accomplishing. There's something that he loves to do. The two blend together to some degree. But I think what God does in his spare time has enormous implications for us. And I think it will inspire us greatly when we see what it is. Would, would you like to see what it is? Would you like to see what I think God loves to do in his spare time? If he has spare time, please say yes. Yes. Type yes in chat if you'd like to hear that as well. And if you would like to see it, I'd love to show you. It is in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. And we're going to start at the very first verse with some very familiar stories. We read this. As they, Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples uh, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, "Uh, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and he's already told us why he is headed to Jerusalem with his disciples. He knows that the leaders of the uh, religious elite, the rulers, teachers of the law, are going to take him, arrest him, and have him killed. And on the third day, God will raise him from the dead. And he exhibits such confidence as he walks towards Jerusalem. If I knew I was walking towards my own death, I don't think I would go with confidence. I would go wondering if there's a plan B. And yet Jesus is showing just this incredible amount of confidence. And he tells his disciples, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And it all happens. Which is amazing to me. Now, You may be surprised as to 
why anyone would let someone take a donkey that's tied up to someone else's home and say, oh, well, the Lord needs it. Well, absolutely, go ahead and take it. However, what is probably happening here is a cultural thing that uh, was quite common in in Roman society. Uh, It was called uh, angaria. Angaria in Roman society was like eminent domain like we have here in the United States. That the government, if they can prove that they need a piece of your property for something vital for infrastructure or something like that, they can take it and compensate you. And that seems to be what Jesus is doing here is he's borrowing this Roman tradition. However, to the readers of Mark, this is going to be even more cool because they would be looking for proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And for him to take this donkey and ride in on it the way that he did would be a complete application of the Zechariah 9 verse 9 passage that says the Messiah will come riding on a donkey. He knew what he was doing. The readers knew what he was doing. And the crowd in this scene knows what he's doing because they are celebrating. Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're connecting him to David's kingdom. They understand what he's doing. The readers understand what he's doing. And to people who understand the Old Testament, who have the complete scriptures today, we understand what Jesus is doing. That's confidence. What I think Jesus is doing calling his shot. Do you know the term calling his shot? Do you know what that means? The only person who has ever successfully said what they were going to do in baseball, one of the most ferocious hitters of all time, was a man named Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth in the 1932 World Series called his shot Wikipedia actually describes it this way. They said that with the score tied 4-4 in the fifth inning of game three, Ruth took strike one from pitcher Charlie Root. And as the Cub players heckled Ruth and the fans hurled insults, Ruth held up his hand, either pointing at Root or pointing at the, the Cubs dugout or center field. People who have analyzed the video can't really tell. And then he repeated this gesture after strike two. So he's 0-2. Most hitters, when they go down 0-2 in the count, will choke up a little bit on the bat. They won't have as full of a swing. They'll get the bat a little bit closer to to the plate rather than pulling it all the way back for a full-powered swing. And so he's, that's what most hitters would do, just so they could make contact. Not Ruth. Ruth's nec- Root's next pitch was a curveball that Babe Ruth hit at least 440 feet to the deepest part of left field. And some estimates say it was 490 feet. 500 feet. You don't even hear that today in baseball. Babe Ruth was the only player who was able to point, call his shot, say where that ball was going to go, and then ended up putting it there. No video editing. That's how they won. And it was so powerful. This is where the Yankees got their swagger that they continue to have to this day. And 
It was so demoralizing to the Cubs that they ended up losing in four straight. What confidence. And that is what Jesus is doing here. And if you think, well, he just predicted that someone would give him a donkey. For him to do that, to say, I am going to march in as the Messiah and everyone's going to see it and tell his disciples, this is how you're going to get the donkey. This is how you're going to work. That's Jesus calling his shot. Jesus knows who he is and is acting with supreme, ultimate confidence. And he doesn't stop there because we keep reading in Mark 11 verse 15 that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. If you don't think Jesus has a temper, here's your proof. Because how much confidence do you have to walk in to the temple and start throwing around merchants and money changers and flipping tables and getting rid of them? Jesus is furious that this would be happening. Why, why is he furious? I mean, it's just, you know, it's the worship band selling CDs after a, you know, in the lobby selling tickets to the Christmas fundraiser or, you know, that sort of thing. But it's actually more. This isn't about selling things in the church lobby. This practice was actually an incredible barrier for those outside of the people of God, Gentiles, who were coming to be right with God. They would come perhaps with currency that wasn't quite the standard in Jerusalem, but it was currency nonetheless. And the temple decided, well, we don't want to have to be the ones to make the exchange in order to make this good in the city, so we're going to make you do that. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to charge you pretty much four times what it would cost you if you didn't go somewhere else. Maybe they'd come with an animal. Animals back then were part of people's financial security. It also showed their heart's condition that they wanted to be right with God. And someone would say, that's not a good enough animal. You need to exchange it for one that we vetted. You need a kosher animal. And so they would make you pay for it. And at some point, it just became, what's the point? At some point, it became, what's the point? If I have to go through all these hoops to be right with God, why bother? And so it was becoming a barrier for those who wanted to worship. And Jesus cleans that up 
And, and as an aside, I think Jesus is still doing that from time to time. Maybe not in the temple per se, but in every church that's ever existed. We Christians, we tend to gatekeep who gets to come to God. And we set up rules and processes and procedures to make our lives easier and better for the church that we want to attend. It's the right intentions because we think it's the best, but then it doesn't work for those who are far from God and they say, what's the point if I have to jump through all of these hoops? And those best intentions become criminal application. And imagine... Jesus were to come here today and say, you need to change everything about how you have a service, how you organize as a people, how you consistently meet for lunches after church and never invite anyone to come for lunch into your home. How dare you? I don't have that kind of courage. No, I'm... Hire a pastor, you take a year or two to get to know some people, and then you start to just move a few things and move a few pieces just to see who gets riled up. I mean, in a church like ours, do you want to know how fast I can rile people up here? I just need to move that flag right there. <laughs> I wish I had that courage. So why does Jesus have this incredible confidence? Why does Jesus walk into the temple and say, my house? Why does he have this kind of confidence? Is it because he's the Messiah? I don't think so. I think we see why Jesus has such incredible confidence in a strange little moment that I skipped over, and I apologize for doing that. That happened before and after he left the temple. It starts in Mark 11, verse 12. Before Jesus gets to the temple and clears out all the money changers, we read that the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit of you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And then the temple cleansing happened. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. <laughs> and Jesus said, Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus had ultimate confidence 
in doing what he did, cursing the fig tree, riding in on the back of a donkey as the symbol of the Messiah, cleansing the temple from those who would block people from finding God. Because he knew something about God. I think Jesus knew what God loves to do in his spare time, so to speak. And I think that this is the secret to powerful Christian faith today. Jesus had complete confidence that his father didn't just command him to serve, but that his father served him in the process. The father... God, he was serving him. And that God was also serving Jesus in return. It was the perfect dance. It was the perfect harmony of music where the son is serving the father. But the father is also serving the son. And that's what God loves to do in his spare time. He loves to serve you and me. He loves to serve you and me. He causes the rain to fall on the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Does he have to do that? No. And yet he sets up a system of blessing people regardless of their state of righteousness or relationship with him. Think about this. The benefit of being a believer is that the God of all things, the most powerful being in all of existence, there will never be anyone like God loves to serve you. Scriptures are full of references of what God does. He daily bears our burdens. He sustains us in our old age from Isaiah 46 verse 4. And from the same verse, he carries us and protects us. He keeps us in his arms near to his heart. He leads us and feeds us safely, Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd who finds pasture, rivers of water to restore our soul safely. He gives strength to the weary, power to the weak. Jesus himself said in last week's message when we talked about greatness that the Son of Man did not come to be served, which was his right. But instead, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think Jesus knew as he walked into Jerusalem that he was walking to the cross. But he also trusted in his God that God would serve him and raise him from the dead just as he promised as Jesus walked in his will. Isn't that powerful? The God of all things serves you. And he loves to do it. And he loves to do it in his leisure time. He's working his plan. He's bringing people to salvation. He's being patient with them. And then last week, what would you like me to do for you? To his closest friend and to a person who was on the farthest edge of the crowd and couldn't get to him. That's the kind of God that we have. That's what makes God different than any other religion or any other world system. That there is a being who looks at you and says, how can I serve you? That is mind-blowing to me. That is outrageous 
to me that a holy God would love to pick up the towel and serve me as I serve him, right? Because this isn't a blank check promise. Challenge with this verse is that we read it all out of context and say, well, I prayed that the mountain would move. And the mountain's still there. As a matter of fact, I didn't end up like the roadrunner going through the mountain. I ended up like the coyote splat into the mountain. It's how it ended up for me. It's not a blank check promise. It's important to understand that this is about faith in God. That as you serve him, he is serving you. And this is Jesus serving the Father. Doing the Father's will. He's headed to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die for the sins of the world. But he knows that God is going to raise him from the dead. And so he acts with complete confidence that he is God's man for the moment. We don't get to experience Verse 24, where that mountain moves, where our prayers are answered, where we act in faith that God has already said yes, and then we experience that unless we understand verses 22 and 25, that this is faith in God, that this is, oh, and by the way, if you need to forgive someone, forgive them so your heavenly Father forgives you. In other words, Jesus didn't just teach others to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and that all these things would be added to you as well he lived it and the question is do we um, last week uh, at the uh, lunch after service total surprise um, that there would be a sort of a graduation lunch it was it was actually really cool um i posted some pictures on my facebook page of the event and really and just saying thank you to a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork and said hey congratulations on your graduation i didn't feel the need to correct them that it happened in 2020 but you know we're only celebrating a year and a half later but they're all saying congratulations like it happened yesterday and i went "Ooh, that actually feels really really good what was amazing about the whole thing, one of the things that stood out to me was that my wife uh, went and got a number of, of sort of tribute videos or kind words, and then all of you submitted uh, cards and things. But on, on the video, uh, one of them was from my mom, and my mom always has a way of, of, of uh, bringing truth to life, I think, a little bit. And she just basically said, you'll always be my son, you'll always be my boy. But I've learned to see that you believe you are God's man for the moment. And I just went, whew, ah, I'm glad I present that kind of confidence because sometimes I don't feel that kind of confidence. And then to come to this passage where Jesus had all this sort of confidence. I think you and I would love to see our prayers answered like this, to have this kind of confidence in a God that as we serve him, he moves mountains And I think there's a couple of things that we can do in order to see that confidence start to build in our lives. The first is Jesus knew how to be God's man for the moment. It's interesting. He never started ministry until, what, 30? How long did you live in Old Testament times? Not long. 
Certainly not as long as today, right? And do you think Jesus maybe should have started sooner? What was he doing? I think, it's not in Scripture, but I think what Jesus was doing was figuring out who he was. I think he was studying the Scriptures. I think Mary told them the stories of the angel. I think he remembered the stories of going to the temple at the age of 12, and he's just schooling all the religious leaders, right? And he's baffled. How come they don't get this? And so he continues to study, he continues to pray, he continues to seek his father until he sees, what if this is me? And all that time, God is shaping him. He begins to understand his unique designed purpose for why God put him on the planet at that moment in history. My question to you is, do you know why God has put you on this planet for this moment in history? Are you absolutely sure? Do you know what God is clearly calling you to do? And if you know that, start doing it. That's the first thing. But if you don't know that, I would encourage you to make it a priority. To make it a priority to distill down all of your passions, all of your gifts, all of your spiritual giftings, the things that charge you up spiritually, that other people seem to develop as you do these kinds of things and figure out what is the purpose God has for your life and begin to lean into that because that's when we start to live out God's will for us. It's going to be within the confines of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. It's going to be within the confines of having a right relationship with God, of loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it's going to be within the, the confines of the Great Commission that it will take every fully mobilized disciple to complete the Great Commission, like we just finished in our Core Values series. And we start to work like that's our purpose in life. And when we do, we start to act in faith. And God starts to serve us in that faith. He starts to answer our prayers. You're going to hear some of those stories of how God is answering some of those prayers in our ministries, in our annual meeting next week. But you don't even have to wait that long because you already know what this is like at home. When I have something that I'm wrestling through, reasoning through, thinking through. Sometimes all of that can just be so much, seems like spaghetti on a wall. And do you know who I talk to? When I have a need like that, I need to clarify something in my mind. I need to make sure that I have the right picture. I talk to my wife. I talk to Krista. Because I know Krista will be there. I know that when we have a need in our family that she'll get it done. I have that kind of confidence because I have that kind of confidence in her. When I need something and I ask my son Josh to do it, I know it'll get done. 
because I have confidence, absolute confidence in him. You already know this. You know this in your families. You know this at your workplaces, the people that you can trust and rely on. And as you ask them and they deliver, you go, yes, that brings me closer to you. That's what God is trying to build in us. It is amazing. It is mind-blowing to think that the God we serve loves to serve us. And that motivated Jesus. To walk towards his death. Knowing that in his death there would be the ultimate victory. As you serve. Serve. As God has called you. And serve with complete Confidence that God loves to serve you as you serve Him. You can trust that He will provide as you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Don't be afraid to call your shot and then watch God work. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your example, your courage, and your confidence that your heavenly Father didn't just command you to do, but instead empowered you to do it. May we have that kind of faith. May we have that kind of confidence. Lord, may we walk in faith calling the shot that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.